The Supreme Court's out until late February, but there's still plenty of news to catch up on. Welcome to The Term, a podcast by Law360 to keep you up to speed about the nation's top bench and the nine justices that sit there. I'm Jimmy Hoover. I cover the Supreme Court for Law360 here in Washington. And joining me now from our New York studio is Law360 editor-at-large, Natalie Rodriguez. Welcome, Natalie. Hey, Jimmy. It was technically a down week for the court as there were no arguments. The court, however, made waves with its decision over whether the Trump administration can implement a rule that penalizes immigrants who may need public benefits. We'll be talking about that decision further, as well as giving a sneak peek into what may be rising to the top of the court's shadow docket. Yeah, absolutely. And I mentioned up top that the court is going to be out on recess until I think the last week of February. And just to kind of update uh, everyone about the justices fun plans and how their lives are just a little bit more glamorous than ours. Uh, just as Ruth Bader Ginsburg is going to be, you know, serenaded by James Taylor at, you know, a ward gala, uh, I believe tonight at the Library of Congress. And I think, Natalie, you mentioned you were going to see Justice Kagan, uh, Justice Elena Kagan be uh, receiving a, an award as well. Yeah, uh, myself and our producer, Stephen Trader, we're going to be heading to uh, the New York State Bar Association's annual gala, where Justice Kagan's going to be receiving the gold medal for distinguished service in the law. Um, so it should be a, a, a good time all around. It's at the American Museum of Natural History, so that should be fun. And we're going to be getting some audio, so hopefully we can share that next week. Yeah, and speaking of uh, good times had by all, Justice Thomas is going to be making a stop uh, in Disney World, um, I think in a day or two, to uh, speak at the Federal Society Banquet at the uh, 2020 annual uh, Florida Chapters Conference. Um, So, you know, we got Disney World on the one hand, and uh, museums in New York City, and galas with James Taylor, but uh, let's check in with Chief Justice John Roberts, who I think is going to have kind of a no-fun February presiding over the Senate impeachment trial so he's probably looking at them just thinking oh geez if only if only that pesky constitution didn't <laughs> mandate that i sit here right now yeah for for someone so uh usually diplomatic um in his words and judicious in his words it's been interesting to see him having to kind of verbatim repeat these really politically charged questions at the Im- impeachment uh hearings yeah, now that it's entered into the question and answer phase, you've heard him kind of have to, you know, spout some of these uh, uh, political talking points about fusion GPS and, you know, the whole Ukrainian scandal. So definitely not the place that he wants to to find himself in. <laughs> but uh, yeah, let's 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 move on to some of the court's official business. So that was on uh, on Monday when the Supreme Court voted five to four uh, to lift an, a nationwide injunction against the Trump administration's controversial public charge rule. Um, so to I don't know if everyone's familiar, but this was a rule that the um, Department of Homeland Security under President Trump had basically uh, interpreted public charges. So just to kind of back up, immigration law gives the DHS the ability to restrict entry or even deport people who are likely to become uh, public charges. So, you know, reliant on the on the federal government for benefits. So the Trump administration in this case had a rule that, you know, had a broad interpretation of the word public charge, um, you know, as anyone who receives or is likely to receive food stamps uh, and other, you know, non-cash benefits. So progressive critics obviously filed a lawsuit um, challenging these, these new uh, immigration restrictions, saying that it was you know uh, overly broad it swept um it swept too broadly and uh so that was a hotly contested ruling uh, you know where the five uh, conservative justices voted to lift the nationwide injunction uh whereas the four liberal ones said that they would have denied the trump administration's request and left the uh, injunction in place blocking the trump administration essentially 
Now, while a divided ruling, that seems like a pretty straightforward decision, uh, except there was also an opinion attached, right? Yeah, that's right. So Justice Neil Gorsuch um, wrote a concurrence that was uh, joined by Justice Clarence Thomas, in which he basically said that he this whole issue of nationwide injunctions, you know, these where a federal district court um, decides that it's going to block, you know, the government from implementing um, a controversial new policy anywhere in the country. He said that there's really no basis for this uh, legally. Um, he said that they were sowing confusion in the lower courts um, and that it was a real problem that the court had to address. Uh, so that definitely caught a lot of people's attention given how, you know, um, prominent of an of a legal issue the, the whole concept of nationwide injunctions has been over the last few years during the Trump administration. Yeah, in some ways the has become the real threat uh, for the Supreme Court docket over the Trump administration. Um, you know, having to deal with all the emergency applications that are often tied to these nationwide injunctions. Um, and, and, you know, you can get the sense that the justices are a little fed up or, or, or tired of having to deal with the emergency applications kind of on top of their already busy um, full docket. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, according to the Department of Justice, there's there have been around 40 nationwide injunctions since uh, Trump took office, which I think is about double the amount uh, that there were over the over the length of the Obama administration. So this has definitely been a prominent legal issue. Um, you know, and you mentioned the emergency filings from the government. There's also been studies to have showed that there's been an unprecedented number of applications um, to jump over uh, courts of appeals or otherwise, um, you know, take a lot of emergency action in these cases. And I think you're right that the, that the court is a bit flummoxed and flustered by um, just the, the, the speed and the urgency at which things are moving. It seems like, you know, the normal um, appellate process is not always playing out in these cases. Um, and so you have Gorsuch and, and Thomas, and, you know, I don't think it's a surprise to, to anyone to, to see them, you know, put their, their thoughts in writing, because I, I remember during the travel ban case where, uh, you know, it was, an, it was also involving a nationwide injunction. Uh, Gorsuch had cr- criticized, you know, what he considered to be the the, the increasing trend of nationwide inju- these cosmic injunctions was his kind of cynical word on, uh, cynical take on it and and just as Thomas later put his thoughts down in a in a concurrence in the travel ban case saying yeah the, the Supreme Court has to do something about it so now you have them both kind of on record here um, really calling on their colleagues to you know revisit this issue um, that's become such a such a story such a legal story during the Trump administration yeah and I mean just looking also at the at the statistics it really does look a uh, like a phenomena over the last decade. Um, you know, obviously Trump's uh, numbers are, are very high up, uh, you know, compared to Obama. But before Obama, there wasn't really these kind of nationwide injunctions against presidents. So it's, it, you know, it, it is a really kind of new issue for the Supreme Court to be dealing with, um, relatively anyway. Um, and I can understand why they feel they need to perhaps grapple with this issue now. Yeah, it's interesting that, you know, no other conservative justice on the court joined Gorsuch's concurrence other than Thomas. Um, You know, is that a suggestion that they don't agree that it's, you know, that these uh, nationwide injunctions are overbroad? You know, it's hard to speculate, but, uh, you know, experts I've talked to said that eventually the court's going to have to, as you said, grapple with this issue, confront it, because it's just coming up in too many cases. Yeah, that'll be definitely something to watch. Um, And and, then speaking of of things to watch, Jimmy, you had this great story last week uh, about the court's shadow docket and what might be coming up the pipeline for next term. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so the court, for the most part, has filled up, you know, it's it's the remaining oral arguments for the term. There are two sessions left, and there's a lot of pending cases that haven't yet been set. So that kind of leads you to believe that any additional cases that it takes up, you know, it's going to set for 
argument in the fall, next term, the 2020 term. Um, so there have been a couple, uh, as we were talking about, you know, off air, that the court has been sitting on uh, for a few weeks now, since the beginning of January, since it came back from its winter recess, um, suggesting that potentially the court is interested in, you know, adding these cases to the fall term. Um, and, you know, they present some... Uh, fascinating questions around, you know, the question of agency deference. It's been one of the themes of of the new Supreme Court um, with the addition of President Trump's two appointees is reigning in uh, the power of administrative agencies, the so-called administrative state. And, you know, one way that you can do that is by getting rid of a lot of these legal doctrines that um, essentially give agencies power in, in legal battles. So, Natalie, I think you um, had done some looking into one of the cases, Guedes versus ATF. Do you want to set that one up for us? Yeah, um, I, this one's popularly known as the bump stock case. Um, so, as many listeners might remember, in 2017, there was that awful mass shooting in Las Vegas where 58 people were killed and more than 400 injured at a music concert. After that, there was a federal ban placed on bump stocks, which are these plastic accessories that can be and were in this case used to convert semi-automatic weapons into fully automatic ones. Um, Now, the ban wasn't an act of Congress. Um, It was specifically the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosive banned bump stocks as a type of machine gun under uh, the National Firearms Act. Well, the petitioners in this case say that was a far overreach of, like, the agency, you know, reinterpreting the National Firearms Act. Um, And they are, you know, looking at the Chevron deference, which a lot of the conservatives in the court have previously kind of, you know, raised red flags about, raised alarms about, kind of saying that, you know, this Chevron deference from the 1984 case, you know, is being used perhaps too broadly. Yeah, so the the firearm groups and um, the gun owners, the bump stock owners in this case, they say that, you know, the the ATF, the courts should not defer to the ATF's interpretation of the statute in this case. In this case, it was interpreting, you know, bump stocks as a type of, you know, machine gun that could be prohibited. They say the courts were wrong. The In this case, the D.C. Circuit was wrong to defer to the agency's interpretation. And they make kind of an interesting argument for why Chevron shouldn't apply here. Yeah, the petitioners are basically saying that Chevron does not and should not apply in criminal cases, and instead that the court should adopt um, this other doctrine that's usually used for criminal cases that says where there are ambiguous statutes, it should be read in favor of the defendant. Right, yeah, and so now the court you know, is being presented this uh, question on whether to take it up and get rid of Chevron in all these criminal cases. I have my doubts about whether the Supreme Court will actually take this one up. Um, you know, obviously the bump stock case is, is such a, it has such a tragic backstory with the, you know, the, the, the deadliest mass shooting in U.S. history. I kind of have my doubts about whether the justices, even if they want to get rid of Chevron deference in criminal cases, will choose this as the vehicle to do so, given just like the raw emotion around, you know, the issue of, of bump stocks and especially that Las Vegas shooting. So potentially, you know, in, other than, you know, an alternative to them adding it to maybe the fall docket would be them you know, writing some kind of statement or concurrence, and potentially that's why it's taking so long. So um, it's it's a little bit too early to tell, but there's another case that has also caught the justices' uh, attention as well. Um, this one's called Baldwin versus U.S., um, and it involves essentially an IRS filing deadline rule. Um, I won't get into the nitty-gritty of the facts of the case. It's a little bit complicated, but essentially um, the Ninth Circuit had deferred to the IRS um, in a you know, a dispute with a taxpayer over a reading, over its interpretation um, 
you know, this regulation and specifically uh, the filing deadline rule. And uh, the, the, I, the, the Ninth Circuit said that even though a previous Ninth Circuit court had, you know, come to a different interpretation of this um, statutory provision that was in dispute in the case, we're going to still defer to the IRS's interpretation under a doctrine known as Brand X. So this is called Brand X deference, and it's when, you know, courts essentially defer to an agency, even if um, another court has, a court of appeals has reached a conflicting um, interpretation or a reading of a, of a statute. And so now you have the taxpayer um, is back uh, before the Supreme Court asking them to get rid of brand X deference. Um, and that is another one that's been sitting on the court's docket for a few weeks now. Yeah, I think, I mean, I'm definitely looking at this case and, and thinking that it might have, um, perhaps, as you mentioned, a, a bit of a better chance um, with the court versus the bump stock case. Um, you know, conservative justices have long raised alarms about agency deference. We've seen them take up some key cases um, in, in related issues uh, in recent years. We've seen, I've seen Justice Thomas, you know, really take his opinions as an opportunity to kind of call out how broad Chevron uh, can really be read. And, and so, you know, he's long called for an appropriate case to cinch in the reading of Chevron, which kind of, you know, just gives this deference to the agency's reading of it when there's a ambiguous statutory term. So it'll be interesting to see if he might be getting that appropriate case uh, he's long called for in, in one of these cases. Yeah, and absolutely. And, and finally, another case that I think um, is worth mentioning is totally outside the realm of deference here, but um, no less interesting. It's the case of Arlene's Flowers Incorporated versus Washington State. Um, so this one is basically a rehash of the famous Masterpiece Cake Shop case from 2018 um, involving, uh, you know, the right, the First Amendment right of a, you know, a religious wedding vendor, say, you know, in that case, it was a Christian baker, but in the Arlene's Flowers case, it's a Christian florist, um, to turn away, um, you know, uh, same-sex customers for their weddings, essentially asserting that, you know, by forcing uh, these creative professionals to, um, you know, sell either a custom wedding cake or provide the floral arrangements in in a same-sex ceremony, they're effectively being, it's compelled speech. They're being compelled to endorse a message of support for same-sex marriage that, you know, violates their, their religious beliefs. Now, uh, the Supreme Court famously punted in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case in 2018, and uh, it declined to actually address those core constitutional issues of whether the First Amendment, uh, you know, protected the uh, the right of uh, you know these religious business owners to turn away um, same-sex couples, and instead ruled on you know these narrow procedural grounds on you know saying that the Colorado Civil Rights Commission it had you know shown a disrespect or intolerance for you know religion throughout the course of the proceedings. Um, so that kind of left. Um, um, the lower courts in a state of a little bit of disarray. There's been conflicting rulings all over the country, and you know I think the Arlene's Flower cases is the most uh, salient one um, in which you know it, it followed a similar fact pattern of a of a Christian uh, business owner turning away uh, her longtime customers who had sought her um, business for their upcoming uh, nuptials. Now the Washington Supreme Court um, ruled twice in favor of the couple in this case, uh, which is going to tee up their appeal to the Supreme Court, which I believe, you know, is going to involve some of the same legal issues. Yeah, with the Flores case, you know, the, the 
the lower court um, vacated its original kind of decision against the florist um, in light of Masterpiece and looked at it all over again and still came to the same conclusion. So it'll be interesting to see if the Supreme Court justices take this as an opportunity to perhaps, um, you know, give a broader ruling on this issue um, and not rule on the kind of same procedural issues uh, that they did in, in the Baker case. Yeah, I think it's worth pointing out that uh, while the legal issues you know, are for the most part the same. It's even the same, uh, you know, uh, religious liberty um, right-wing legal advocacy group, the Alliance Defending Freedom, that's representing the florist in this case. Uh, There's one really important difference between the two cases, and that's that Justice Anthony Kennedy, um, who was the kind of swing vote in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, uh, you know, he's no longer on the court. He retired, and now he's been replaced by Justice Brett Kavanaugh, who's seen as a little bit more conservative than him. So that is a crucial... uh, 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 variable at issue here. And so, you know, that could potentially um, force the, the court to really tackle this case on the merits. But uh, as you said, uh, we'll have to, to watch and see in the coming weeks to see if the court takes any action on the, on the pending petition. Definitely be on our radar. Um, and I think that'll just about do it for us this week, Jimmy. Thanks so much. It's been great chatting with you. Yeah, great chatting with you. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. We'd like to thank our producers and editors, Stephen Trader and Danielle Smith, our executive producer, Amber McKinney, and our contributing reporters this week, Suzanne Moniak and Vin Guerreri. Music for the show comes from Slenderbeats. For more information about all the high court action, please go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law 360 and the term. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.